I invite you down the rabbit hole. Come with your opinions, come with your doubts, but above all, come with curiosity. For this is an idea to which someone has dedicated their life. I'm your host, Pepper. Welcome to Inspector Rabbit. and I'm really excited about the conversation we are about to have. Thank you for making the time today to sit down and have a chat with me. Thank you for inviting me for the podcast. (laughs) Okay, so I really want to get into uh, the backstory of how you got started in this industry. Can you tell me about your education and where, where this all began? Well, at school, I was always very good at drama and at Latin. So I always kept pursuing those two avenues. And I think really what helped me was um, a couple of things on my sort of life and career chart. The first one was my brother and sister are much older than me. And there was this drama holiday camp run by Nikki and Edward, um, Ed Whiteman, who is still um, practicing in Sydney in the industry. And my parents wanted to go and have a holiday and there was it was like drama camp for older kids from my brother and sister's age and I was allowed to join and there was something about being allowed in something about doing stuff with older kids uh, and I remember that time I remember that experience I remember how special it felt and then at the end of high school there was an amazing competition in Australia called uh, it was called Globe Australia and it was run by a phenomenal Canadian woman called Diana Denley and you would do the all the rounds within your school and within your city and then uh, if you won if you were selected you got to go to Sydney and you would do a Shakespeare production at the Bondi Pavilion and I won twice I won year 11 and in year 12 and I knew it was I think it was the first one the first one in year 11 I knew that this is what I wanted to do with my life the idea um, it was both the storytelling, the intensity of storytelling, but then the the collaboration. So I was with people from all around Australia and there were dancers, designers, musicians, actors, um, and we were pushed very, very, very hard. So I enjoyed the level of the work uh, and the collaboration and the storytelling. Wow. Did you do drama school? That's right, I did. And I auditioned straight out of school. I auditioned for NIDA, like so many people wow. do. And what and, does NIDA stand for? Uh, so NIDA is the National Institute of Dramatic Art in Sydney. 
there's three, I guess three, maybe four drama schools in Australia. Um, WAPA, West Australian Academy of Performing Arts, over in Perth, Victorian College of the Arts in Melbourne, and then NIDA in Sydney. And there are a few others, but I think they're sort of at dif- different levels. And uh, those three are the ones that have been around for the longest. And at 18, I remember I was I was shortlisted, and I remember very clearly Kevin Jackson. I was I knew they weren't going to give the I knew they weren't going to give me a place, but I remember Kevin asking after I had done the piece to camera and it was the last thing to do that we had to do and he said, um, you don't follow the rules very well, do you? Um, and I was so shocked that he'd kind of like saw straight through to my soul <laughs> and knew that, um, no, I don't follow rules. So I think they knew I would have been trouble. And then I, that school leave a year, not getting in, I was, I mean, I was pleased to get Uh, to where I did but there was something about then exploring the industry in Australia and with my father being English Mm. I then decided actually I was on a five-year plan to go and train in the best what I regarded to be the best place in the world and I looked at I did look at America and New York for a bit but with my British passport uh, and my interest in voice and accents I realized that London and my interest in new work um I realized that London was where I wanted to go. So I had a five-year plan to get into a London drama school. And I think it was like two and a half years I got I got into Central School of Speech and Drama in London, which was huge. It was a huge, wow. huge achievement. And I was, I was pretty chuffed. It was very, very special. Not everyone is lucky enough to go to a school. Mm. Um, so I was really, really thrilled to go. Wow, that sounds like a really exciting experience. So you moved your whole life from Australia over to London. I did move all the way, and I thought that I was—I thought I was going to stay there for forever and ever. Mm. And I, I thought there was a part of me that was British, and I didn't realize once I got there that no, I was def- definitely not. <laughs> um, when you train overseas, it's, it's harder and better for the internationals. You're already learning as a drama student what the Lexi is in you, what the Seculus is in mm. you. Um, what the what the woman is in you, what the what the twenty something is, yeah. all these aspects. But then the international kids also learn they they learn about their culture and the culture that they're in, and you learn that through you know painful homesicknesses of home of of, of homesickness. Sorry, mm. ex, um, feelings of homesickness, mm. but it ultimately means that the experience is 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 better. It's really tough drama school, though. I mean, I knew I wanted it to be tough. Some people say to me, "Did you enjoy your time?" and I just answer straight away. I say, I don't think that you were fully participating if you enjoyed yourself. Um, <laughs> so what is involved in drama school? What makes it so difficult? Well, the instrument that actors work with is themselves. So you have to um, concentrate on yourself. Your self-awareness has to be um, extremely high in all levels and all different ways. So in first year, the basics of, of movement and voice, um, the way you move, what any little kinks or little issues you've got mm. in your body. Um, and who decides what kinks and issues you have? The teachers. Okay. The teachers. So we had two movement teachers, two voice teachers, uh, and then a bevy of, of acting teachers as well. Mm. Um, yeah, you're being told... You're being told to watch yourself and look at yourself the whole time, mm-hmm. but then you've got staff looking at you and commenting on you all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, then you're, you are made to do things and tasks like animal study. So I was given a gorilla. Um, so for a whole year, I had to, first of all, observe the gorilla. You're doing a lot of observation exercises as, as well um, to get more, to, yeah, just to kind of um, 
fine tune all of those muscles of, of, of understanding human behavior, observing human behavior, and then having an agile um, instrument so that you can adopt and change uh, and then know, know what it is that you're, you're working with. Mm. Um, know your instrument and know yourself very, very well. Um, but that's a painful process. I remember my favorite teacher, Peter McAllister, saying that no matter what, uh, even if even if those who go to drama school don't stay in the industry, they will be better human beings by the end of it. Absolutely. Because yeah. it sounds as though the experience is quite confronting, especially being as young as you were, going into that air, that environment and people are commenting on these little things that they want you to change or being be aware of. You are suddenly forced to be in your in yourself and centered and present and then have to change the way that you've moved and spoken your entire life mm, mm, yeah. yeah it's tough it's close to torture yeah <laughs> but I um I love hard work and I wanted the challenge I just didn't know that I would learn the things um I, I am so pleased about what they gave me and I'm so blessed to have gone mm. to a school like that um as well as all of this technique. So they're teaching you technique. You get in because you've got talent. They're teaching you technique. Okay. Um, and there were a lot of techniques in, in terms of just sort of the kind of things on your bookshelf, sort of checklist stuff that I that I knew that I needed. Um, but then there are deeper things about, about you as an actor and your casting. That stuff happens then in, in, in second year and then you start learning – all these different tools so that's what's amazing about drama school is you're exposed to so many different techniques you're you're given all of these different tools um so i was able to do uda hagen stuff traditional stanislavski um a lot of other russian techniques um meisner the american so um and then of course all of the english um kind of literary criticism type work um mike alfred's lists um uh, and then the, the way that Katie Mitchell progressed that. So these are all so, just so many techniques. And it means then when you get out in the industry, you will be in a rehearsal room with someone and it's so magical if they do the same technique as you. Okay. Um, and you, you need to have more than one. You need to have more and more available to you because you could be on a job and you will be trying something and invariably the director will say to you, no, nah, I, I just need something else. And that's when you've got to take another tool out of the toolkit mm. and, and then try to access the character access the story in another way but if you haven't been given that technique so I'm I'm obviously I'm super pro people getting trained mm-hmm. um that Australian thing of you know being super good looking and then getting a home and away <laughs> and then being handed a career um I'm I couldn't think less of that process I think that is killing the industry I think that that is rubbish mm-hmm. I think it should stop <laughs> um okay. that those people can't um actually do anything um, they might look good, they might have presence, so they've got a little bit of talent, but they are completely absent of technique. That's like that's like someone coming into your house, your toilet is broken, and the person kind of looks like, like you, you look like you could fix a toilet, right? Um, and then they charge You're you. You're a man. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. Um, yeah, so there's just this surface appearance. Mm. Um, and then they've charged you the, you know, 100 plus call out fee and mm. then your toilet is still broken. Mm. So that's the experience that, that I have when I, you know, see the, the work of these people who got picked up um, because they look good or they seem on the surface to be right. Mm. Um, and 
I may be able to unpack and articulate clearly the fact, you know, what they what what they are missing. But I do think that actually everybody else, all audiences, do know that something is kind of missing. Mm. Um, and I think that will only be the death of the industry. I just wish they were called something else. Like instead of being actors, they were called, I don't know. <laughs> I want to say something really nasty. <laughs> um, yeah, if they had another name, I think that would help. I think that would help clear up the industry. You can tell me the name and I can edit it out, but I'm dying to know what you want to call them. <laughs> well, charlatans, liars, yeah. Yeah. Um, or if they were called models. Mm. Um, some people in America will call them some of these people like personality actors so the ones where you see in every film they play exactly the same it's just a, it's just mm. their personality that they're yeah. able to present um mm. yeah but i think they should be uh, yeah i think they should just be called something totally different okay um yeah i think it would clear everything up okay uh, i want to go back to because because obviously i want to talk about the industry and how that's being impacted in a number of ways from recent events and what work you're currently doing uh to help the industry but first uh for the listeners who don't know and myself as well can you go back to those techniques that you described and maybe just pick one and give me an example of what kind of technique are are you talking about voice or moving your body what sort of things are you talking about there um so though all of those acting practices were um some of them were um ways that you might find the subtext in um play text or Mm -hmm. film text or just any script that someone else has has written um but then there are also ways into character so um Uta Hagen is an American um actress who then um created sort of a different version of Stanislavski's stuff and Stanislavski is kind of considered the father of 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 modern acting um contemporary acting and and contemporary acting technique um but I, I'll give you an example of something that you can do. So Uta Hagen has this exercise and they're, they're called object exercises. Mm. And they are a practice to help you develop your um, ability to concentrate, your imagination, um, your presence, your sense of space. Um, and you, the, all these things you need to have as an actor, you need to have strong imagination, great spatial awareness. And what you do with object exercises is you begin by just doing something in real life. So you could do making a cup of tea and present your object exercise to the teacher and they watch it and they give you notes and they become more and more complicated. And then you start adding in motivations, circumstances, time pressures uh, in time. You can add other people into the object exercise as well. Mm. But the idea is you're not yet dealing with character. You are just being yourself in space. And usually what happens is you behave abnormally. <laughs> that That's usually the feed. The first around load of feedback is um you don't make a cup of tea like that, Lexi. <laughs> So it's for you to realize unnecessary tension. It's for you to realize when you are not using yourself and your instrument and really um, for you to realize that you can't have a point of concentration, which is just you concentrating and freaking out about being watched. Mm. You need to place and concentrate on the right things in order to tell the story. Mm. Um, So that's that's just one acting technique. Um, And then... Um, Uta Hagen has you know a range of other ones um, and I like those ones because they involve you being in, in your body 
Um, there's a lot of text analysis, which is super analytical and I'm a little bit headbound myself. So sometimes I don't need any more of that kind of, okay. you know, headbound, super intellectual stuff. But um, you're always, you're like a detective, you know, the actor's job is, is like being a detective. You're mining the text, a story that someone else wrote. So you can find all the clues mm. in order to tell your part of the story accurately. Okay. After drama school, what did you do? So I stayed in London and the plan was always to stay forever mm. and ever. Um, I was lucky enough to sign with an agent, but as I reflect on it, uh, and this is something that can be a little bit of a hang up, I didn't have representation at the level that I really, really, really wanted. Mm -hmm. That can be hard. It means that you then don't really have access to the parts of the industry that you want. Um, I did, however, thanks to Central, um, have a couple of really, really great gigs. Um, and one of them was um, for the Wanamaker Festival at the Globe doing mm -hmm. Lady Anne, which I absolutely loved and I learnt a huge amount. And that was in Richard III? That's right. Yep. Yep. Um, and that kind of classic stuff, um, all the work in the classics is what kept on coming up for me. So the industry sort of picks for you what you're going to do you can mm -hmm. sort of wish that you might like to be a you know but then you'll it'll turn out that you'll be or see okay. um and I got a lot of um music videos with this this it was actually this Portuguese band and I kept on getting music videos with them and music I was music videos yeah 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 with this 1950s secretary role <laughs> um and I also had an amazing gig with Tams and Greg Jason Isaacs um Gemma Redgrave and Miriam Margulies which was an amazing play called Appetite. Um, I was just, I was the young, I played the young Gemma Redgrave. Um, and it was, uh, you know, it was an amazing, it was a, an amazing time. I was, though, the thing is I was, I was an Australian girl, but I was running around talking with a British accent. So, which came from, it wasn't, it wasn't that Central suggested it. In fact, they thought, they thought that I should, um, um, you know, just try and be Australian. But you're just always trying to get into the industry. You're just trying to have a place. You're trying to figure mm. out your brand. Are you Colgate or are you McLean's? And as I say, you kind of go in all guns blazes because you'll be given all this advice or your your agent will tell you you're definitely Colgate Lexi. And then you'll start getting castings for McLean's. And then you're like, oh, man, that means I need to change my showreel. I need to change all my collateral, my headshots because I, you know, I look, I, you know, I thought I was Colgate. Now I'm McLean's. Yeah. Um, but you're your brand, you're your business. So one thing that they try very hard and fail massively at is the is that drama school is is letting you know about the business side, the business of being an mm. actor. And you really only learn that properly by failing, you know, getting getting stuff wrong, not getting the part, not getting even the audition. Um, if you have a top, top, top agent, they will take care of all of that for you. But really, nowadays, um, I mean, I went to one of the top drama schools and every four years, one person signs with a top, top agent. Um, and um, there can be like a grief and a sadness if you're not that one, you know. Mm. A lot of people get messed up for years if you, you know, weren't that. Um and I suppose for me, I had to figure out exactly who I was. One thing that really threw me was in those early, you know, school leaver years was that I had this audition for Anzac Girls back here in Australia. So I had to relearn 
my Australian accent. <laughs> and I was crushed when yeah. I didn't get the part. Um, I think because of that, with that business side of things, I knew that had I at that time gotten a, um, a bit of telly, I knew I'd be set. And I still believe that. Um, and there's nothing anyone can do to help you with what is then the, the business of being an actor is just dealing with massive, massive letdown again and again and again. Um, at one stage, I even thought, you know, you do an audition, you'd be in the West End, you'd be in your best outfit, you have great hair and makeup. And I thought, and but the audition would last like 10 minutes. And I used to like, what do I do? What do I do now? And I honestly even thought, I was like, maybe for money, I could just have like lunch with like a rich, miserable person, <laughs> you know, and I could like, it'd be only lunch, right? And mm. and then I would have like made, you know, made up, made some money that day and been able to, I'll just keep on acting like from the audition over lunch. But obviously it doesn't work like that. It's not only <laughs> lunch with those people. It's a much more complicated, but I, I kid you not, I Googled, I looked into it. Like, could I, um what, what, could what could I what could I do mm. um but really that was all just kind of distraction technique stuff right definitely yeah and it sounds like a really confronting experience to come out of acting school and hearing about these people who sign these big contracts with agents and get these parts and then not going um or not having that experience and coming back to Australia as an Australian woman mm. and not getting a part in you know in Anz- is it Anzac Girls? Anzac Girls. Getting a part in Anzac Girls and being devastated. So where did you go from there? Well, I had um, I had quite a few auditions come up just because it was that nurse casting was that was, you know, that was my McLean's like nurse, mm. young professional, yes. like the secretary, you know, I was getting I was getting a lot of that. So there were um, there were there were quite a few other auditions that were going on. And because it was I came back and it was I was only going to come back for summer. But um, after all the Anzac Girl stuff, there was other stuff, Gallipoli. And it was the see, it was the centenary of the um, beginning of, of World War um, World War One. So there was a lot of work going on in, in that space. But I didn't book anything. Um, and um, then my just in my personal life, my father got really ill and other stuff happened. And um, and I was really struggling, I guess, you know, with who I was, especially as I'd just gone through this period where I thought, gee, don't I know? Didn't I just spend ages realizing that and working on that? Um, and it was my my parents and my family who really supported me. So I then realized, gosh, I miss my family so much and I'm just so far from them in London. So I held on to everything in the UK. I held on to my flat and I thought I'll just take I'll just have a break while I'm here um and I had a like an acting sabbatical um and that on went on and on and on and on and in the end a a lovely wonderful girlfriend packed up my flat for me um I have been back to the UK uh once for someone's wedding um and um but the the idea of of not going back was probably something that I never properly fully um you know accepted at the time and the sabbatical was great. I learned other skills. And in fact, what's helped me the most is I learned, um, I actually was able to sharpen up my business skills by doing other stuff. So I worked in politics for a while, which was definitely theatre of another kind. Um, <laughs> and as I say, what was so fortunate was that by being in a different space, I, yeah, I really sharpened up 
my business skills mm-hmm. and I was able in London I did a tiny tiny little bit of producing I produced my own one woman show about Marilyn Monroe mm-hmm. um and and then when I came back to acting I landed a fantastic role um and it was here in Canberra and from that role I got um I got an agent um in Sydney um and then through some other work, you know, because work always begets work, then I was able to get, I've now got a, like a really brilliant agent in Melbourne. It's someone who I'm, I'm proud. It can be, it's really difficult for actors when you go through everything and you want to enter the industry and that, that representation idea, it's, you, you can get by not being represented, but it just means that there are certain doors that are closed to you. Um, so yeah, through that time and coming back, I realized that, I can't be crushed by the phone not ringing and I definitely can't get crushed if I married myself to a part that I didn't get because doing that divorce all by yourself is um sucks yes. <laughs> you're doing a divorce to a part that you know a character that was imaginary <laughs> yeah definitely yeah so I began to realize and this can it can happen you catch up with other actors and all you do is all you do is complain about how difficult it is so my father told me this story that um sep- is he okay now? He is. He is. Good. Yes, good. yeah, no, my dad is good now. <laughs> Thankfully he's great. great. He told me this great story that um septuagenarians should only talk about their ailments uh, just for one minute with What's each other. Septuagenarian. Oh, um someone who's in their seventies. Oh, okay. So old people. <laughs> it's a nice way of saying old people. Yes, okay. <laughs> old people should agree that for just one minute each they talk about everything that's going all their ailments, all of their aches and pains. Just for one minute. Just for one minute. Oh, that's yeah. not a lot of time. No, it's not. But I think it's a good cap. <laughs> and then I realized I should do that with my acting friends. For one minute we should whinge about the part that we didn't get. Because really it was it was you know, it was eating it was eating me up. Mm. Um, and once I did that, then one minute is not long, as you say, then, you know, coffee's not even arrived once, Mm. once each person has done their one minute. And so then I began, there was space for me to think about what I would like. And I guess that's how I began to flirt with producing. Um, and I do it so that I get to make some phone calls. I do it so that I'm making a contribution um, and I do it for a sense of empowerment with my own career. Um, so instead of just whinging about the industry, I'm trying to make an impact, a positive impact in some way. Great. And I think so, gosh, there's so many things I could say to all of <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Well, what are you currently working on as a producer? So I um, have a company in Canberra called Lake Spear and Co. Mm-hmm. And I used to, I tried a little bit of producing by myself and I realized I really don't like that. The first thing I did was I acted by myself and produced by myself. And at first of all, I thought, oh no, I don't want to act by myself. And then I realized, oh no, 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 I also don't want to produce by myself. Okay. Um, so it started as a, as a team of, of four um, and my great, great, great friend, Dr. Duncan Driver, who is a wonderful actor and um, an academic. Mm-hmm. Uh, he sounds very familiar. He, Dr. Duncan Driver. Dr. Duncan Driver. He's um, he's in almost everything I do in Canberra. Okay. Um, yeah, he's the co-artistic director of, of Lake Spear and Co. Okay. And I realized once he approached me, I was like, yes, this is it. Because I, as I say, I'd made that decision. I was like, no more, don't produce by yourself. Um, and the idea of working with someone um, with Duncan's, uh, of Duncan's 
expertise was really exciting. And he'd found this, you know, money man, Tamus Werner Gibbings. He said, <laughs> I'm get, I'll get the money if you guys put the show on. And the first thing that he wanted to do was in Canberra, something like the New York Shakespeare in the Park. And I thought, well, this is cool. Um, and then I, I'm, I looked at the three of us and I was like, mm, we're missing some skills. And okay. so <laughs> I got my um, great colleague, Paul Leverance, who had helped me do production management and stage management in some of the other things I had produced by myself. Um, so we started as a four and we, um, you know, not only did I like the idea, as I say, of finding a team, I liked that it was in Canberra so I could... I could kind of run away from, it was Sydney at that stage. I could run away from Sydney um, and we were going to do it in summer. So it's, it was, uh, it just all seemed to work. But there was also something about Tamus's um, um, energy and his ambition. He had a kind of like um, cowboy attitude and um, it's almost like he has, uh, I still feel this, he has some of the confidence that I know that I need. Okay. Um, so even though we fight like cat and dog, <laughs> um, I, I enjoy the, the kind of energy and the forward momentum. He is the one who will always say to me, well, why not Lexi? Why can't we do that? Why not? And he'll then point out, you know, you did this, this and this, and you know, this will usually be deep in an argument and I'll be like, you, what, what, you, uh, oh, yeah, yeah, you're right. Thanks, Tamus. <laughs> it sounds like you compliment each other really well. Is Tamus an actor? No, no, no. So Tamus is Tamus is a Tamus is a politician. Okay. He is running for uh, Tuggeranong, one of the seats down south. And this all started because he didn't. He almost, almost got in. Um, I think it might be yeah, Brenda Bella. So he almost got in in 2016, mm-hmm. and then he it was. I think it's really clever. He thought, what can I do to have a presence and give something to my community, mm-hmm. to my community, even though I, I like I nearly got in. Um, and so he thought, yeah, I'll, I'll produce. Um, so I think it's, I, and I think it's amazing how art and politics is just constant. It's for me, they just keep on coming together. Definitely. Yeah. Definitely. Always coming together. So that, yeah, that's how Lake Spear started. And then it was so, we thought we'd get like 50 people at each show and we did much to do about nothing. Um, we had hundreds and then at one show we had nearly 2000 people in Glebe Park. Wow. So I think our smallest audience was like. Oh, it was like 600, 700, yeah, 900, and then 1,800 for those four shows. Wow. So we knew we were onto something. That is incredible. So for those listeners who aren't familiar with Canberra, there's a gigantic lake right in the middle named Lake Burley Griffin and Lake Spear is set on the shores of the Lake Burley Griffin is that right that's right and we also we always open actually down near Lake Tuggeranong okay. um, we'd love to be able to go up to Lake Ginandera as well mm-hmm. but um, there's just isn't there's a lot of concrete around Lake Ginandera mm-hmm. there isn't a great big park area oh, okay. you know where we can do but the goal is that we will do something up there hopefully so that we actually tour even within Canberra so uh, language and theatre accessibility is really important mm-hmm. to me and it's important to Lake Spear. That's why Lake Spear, uh, what we offer in summer, um, and that summer show we call Shakespeare by the Lakes, that's free for people to come along. Um, and it's free because... I think any practitioner in Australia needs to make a contribution to audience development. Mm-hmm. Um, the arts gets a bad rap in Australia, and so I think you need to we need to work hard and show people how it is for them. And so, 
how they can enjoy it and help Mm. develop audiences. When you talk about Shakespeare, for somebody who's been an audience member in Shakespeare before, often I feel disconnected from the dialogue that's happening on stage and sometimes I think that it's not necessarily relevant. And if I'm not 100% engaged, of course I would be at Lake Spear and I was at Lake <laughs> Spear last year, I would feel like I would kind of drift off and be in my own in my own mind and I because I think I have this idea that I, I don't understand it. It's too complicated and mm. how am I going to connect with it? And I, I think that I, you know, used to think I'd, I'd go along to a Shakespeare play and I just wouldn't understand it. And I don't want to feel silly if all my friends are going, that's amazing, what a great play. And I really have no idea what was going on. So how, through your audience development, how are you uh, impacting those audience members? And I know a lot of people feel that way. Mm. How are you uh, trying to... Uh, develop the audience so that they're more likely to go to a Shakespeare play. Mm. I think what you are saying is uh, an experience which many Australians have with all types of theatre, not just Shakespeare. So we have a big problem with cultural cringe in Australia's art scene and particularly in our theatre scene. And cultural cringe is this idea that um, something that is just Australian isn't enough um, so for many years, a, a production would only be done uh, and the lead would be brought out from the UK. Mm. So the JC Williamson Company was the group which, um, you know, for really like a, a century, they were the main producers and they would do Gilbert and Sullivan's and the, all the lead stars were brought out from, from England. So that, that, and that, that's where cultural cringe was, was born, that it possibly couldn't work it wouldn't be enough it wouldn't be right if it was an all Australian cast um so there's that idea then of of stories not belonging to us and us not being good enough for those stories and I think that the residue of that is what you are experiencing and what you described then as an audience member is this the the cultural cringe that you're describing is that the feeling or the response that some people have when they put on something on uh say a, a netflix or stan and they go oh let's see what this this show is about and they go oh it's australian that's it yeah that's yeah. that that is the leftovers it's still it's still there so uh it's and those leftovers are, are kind of deep yeah it's, mm. it's even occurring when someone turns on stan as you yes. say yes. um but it's also going on in that moment of of then uh the the danger of it is mm. then if you feel that you something isn't for you then of course you wouldn't understand it, and then you would then then you, then what is growing and breeding is this idea that if you don't understand it, if it's not for you, then maybe you're stupid or, or we're not mm. enough, or and you're not enough. But our stories are for us, and I think that we need to mature our storytelling effort, and that can only happen through uh, um, a richer and more mature practice of storytelling. Now, there's a lot of artistic practices. Um, dance, for example, in Australia, I think is uh, is in a much more um, you know mature and advanced stage. But the, my part of the industry, theatre, um, is 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 not. So I think the idea, the, so the idea with Shakespeare and audience development um, goes back to this idea of, well, what I mentioned, you know, technique way back at the very, very beginning, mm. <laughs> you know. So if you get dear Mr. Hemsworth to come and do something, <laughs> if he were to do a Shakespeare, yes, of course, everyone would get a ticket, but he wouldn't know what he was saying. He wouldn't mm. know at all because he has no technique. He doesn't know how to access the language. And then you 
as the audience member will also have no idea. So we've got a lot of Shakespeare is done in Australia where the um, all the casts, the company, are absent any technique whatsoever at all. Um, it doesn't take much, though, to learn how to handle heightened language. Mm. It doesn't take much at all. But I think that you need to believe as an Australian storyteller that you're able to learn the technique, you're good enough to learn the technique, and you're good enough to hold that language in your mouth. It's, it's just poetry. So it's only a couple of steps away from song. Um, it's just organized sound. Mm. Uh, and the reason that, you know, Shakespeare is done so much and everywhere around the world is because the poetry enables a depth of expression so that you can hold up these stories and you can hold up the expressions. And every year, every decade, because of the depth, something else, something else will pop out, something else will ring true. And there is nothing like when you're delivering a story, I'm delivering my part and you're listening to it as an audience member and the meaning is confirmed, not because I've sorted it all out beforehand, not because Billy Shake sorted it all out 400 years ago, but because in between me speaking and you listening, somehow then the meaning is mm. solidified between the two of us. And that is... That is why theatre is so special. Um, it is that connection. You can only get that with live theatre. And when it's happening with deep, complex ideas about leadership or love or, or jealousy, mm. um, wrongdoing or rightdoing, uh, which these are, this is what the classics present to us, um, then it's deeply moving. So the goal with Lake Spear is that the actors are trained um, and they're given the techniques that I was lucky enough to learn. I want to share those um, so I can play with fellow actors who yeah. who have the confidence that they deserve to have. And then for audiences, it's no risk. It's free. Uh, the February shows are free. Um, and they're there in their environment. So if you live in Tuggeranong, you don't even have to trek into the city. You can come to your park where you... Um, Maybe you, you did a group workout session just the day before. So mm. you already feel safe in that space because it's your park. It's your place. And then that place will be transformed because of the language and the story which we're going to put out into the air. And it's accessible. Yep. 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 We um, use a lot of the stuff that I learned at the Globe, which is about really delivering right to... Um, audience members mm. so the idea of there being um, what's called enacting a fourth wall so it's like um, the idea of the fourth wall is this uh, you know Stanislavskian idea that if I'm performing to you mm. the side that you're sitting in is actually it's like there's another wall up there so I'm never going to look or make eye contact with you but you don't do that with you don't do that with Shakespeare so we follow the we follow the kind of production model of New York Shakespeare in the Park um, free outdoors um, and then the performance model of the globe, which is highly involved. Um, so I'm sending my thoughts and I'm sending language right to mm. you. And I may even include you in a mm. moment. That would be an exciting experience for the audience members. They, yeah, they absolutely love it. Yeah, yeah. they really, really love it. Last year you performed Midsummer Night's Dream in February in Lakespear. And since then, as the listeners will know, COVID-19 has 
taken its toll on many industries, including the arts industry. How have you responded to that? And what has that meant for the arts industry in Canberra and Australia? I think the hardest thing is that the arts sector in Australia and globally responded to this pandemic with total uh, generosity, open hearts and put up free online masses of content, which was uh, a gift to the world and also the most destructive and terrible idea ever because the disruption to the market is unbelievable Mm. what what do you charge now how do you charge how do you determine what you charge exactly Mm. exactly so um the first people to have have a go at bringing prices back in was the old vic in london so they uh they remounted a two-hander a show called lungs um, a two-hander. So, uh, so two, with two actors. So oh, that means okay. it's easy. Uh, it's easy to do. They're not, you know, and you can keep 1.5, right? There's only sure. two actors, <laughs> so not a company. Exactly. Good yeah, good and they, they sort of shot it in a different way. So it was streamed. Yeah. And what they did was, which, which kind of shows just the massive disruption, you had to pay. But, but what they did was you could pay. Um, when you go normally, there's like 20 quid restricted um, view seats or there's like 120 mm-hmm. A, a you know AAA reserve mm-hmm. and what they did was they just put all of those prices up as normal but of course you were paying for a stream ticket not a seat as normal and what mm-hmm. they said is look this is what we used to charge pay what you can pick pick one and pay what you can even though you will be watching you're just going to be watching a stream so I think that shows you that the the industry was at a loss what what, mm. what do we do I have to charge something but how do we how do we start so there's still a lot of difficulties because of that. Um, and most theatres and groups just went into hibernation. Um, they are trying now to open up again with um, extremely reduced numbers so that within the auditorium um, everyone has got their, uh, the, all of the social distancing requirements are, are, are in place. Um, and in Canberra, what happened was the Events ACT, um, they did a, a, a grant, a funding round, which I think really is the only way that, that funding should ever happen in the arts, <laughs> which is government realising, hey, let's partner with industry. You guys are creative. Um, you're creatives. You've got ideas and we need content. So it was really like a mutual partnership and they, they did a festival called the Where You Are Festival. And it was only because of that and Lakespeare being granted um, – uh, some some funding to be a part of the festival that we did a streamed production of Richard the Third, um, and I call it Rockspear Richard the Third. I know there was there's much everyone has their opinion about the Rockspear and oh I feel misled. It sounds like there was going to be more rock music. Honestly, Rockspear. tell me what was Rockspear? Um, so I because because everything that we do has our own sort of unique twist. Mm-hmm. Um. I, and we've got lots of names already. You know, the company is Lakespear. We do Shakespeare Other Lakes. And mm-hmm. a lot of people also like to have little digs at that. I'm confused, Lexi. Why do you have so many names? <laughs> so I thought, oh, you like you, you you don't like names? I'll give you another one. Okay, <laughs> Rocksphere. <laughs> so it's really just a treatment for the show. So when you came to, for those who, who watched the show, it is... Uh, 
it looks like it's a rock concert. So it's Richard III, um, but everyone looks like they're in, you know, kind of rock star gear. And then the, the, uh, I got a fantastic composer, Jay Cameron, to make um, rock music, which was a fusion, like everything we do with Lake Spirit, a fusion of old Mm -hmm. and new. Um, And at times of greatest, uh, greatest human um, conflict, either internally with grief or actual conflict for the battles. That's when Jay's music came out. So it was not a musical. It was not a musical version of of Richard the Third. Um, it was heavily edited as well. So I felt that it, if, even if I hadn't called it Rock Spear Richard the Third, I really would have. I feel I needed to make sure there was a tagline in some way. So there's a, like a big character, Queen Margaret. Um, she's a big presence in this play, and I cut her out altogether. Oh wow. So I think given that I'm doing such a heavy edit, I really feel that there needs to be some kind of nod towards, I'm just prepare. you know, you need to prepare the audience. This isn't quite as you would expect. Mm-hmm. Um, and we did it in a, we did it as a part of Live in Your Lounge, which is a, um, a studio um, set up by Event AV Services because of COVID-19 to live stream music. So the environment that we were walking into is one where there'd been concerts going on. Um, mm-hmm. So... I put Shakespeare into that that environment, so that's yeah, that's how Rockspeare came about. Wow! And did you direct or produce that? I directed it. I produced it, um, <laughs> and then I just made a small little appearance as Lady Anne again because wow. the part means a lot to me. And once I was, once in my career, I was um, directed by someone who had played the part that I was doing and it didn't go very well, to be honest. And I didn't want to do the same thing to another young actress. Mm. Um, the director didn't let go. They kind of suffocated me to be honest, (laughs) um, because they were just holding onto their performance. Mm. And, um, yeah, I I would hate, I would hate to do the same thing. So Mm. I cut the part down. So it was just one scene. I just popped in, popped out. (laughs) so directing producing acting all on the same evening that you sound like you were very busy during COVID well Kenneth Branagh can do it so I think (laughs) I can as well (laughs) um look it was great to get a gig it was great and brought brought down a couple of um you know now pals and colleagues people who I respect hugely from Sydney who've got nothing to do because and that really the whole cast they were so keen to do it even though it was a huge experiment I'm not sure that every part of it worked to be honest um trying to do a stream version of a theater show I think um I'm, I'm hoping that in coming months we'll be able to have a go again and perfect the experiment mm-hmm. um but Everyone in the cast felt and were scared that they would not do anything. Um, they would not have any opportunities at all because some of the actors that I know are only theatre actors. There's a little bit of telly stuff going on, but if you're, you know, going back to all of that agent and representation mm-hmm. stuff, if you're not connected in that way, then you're not going to get that work. So um, all of us were just so pleased to have something to do. That's great. And was it successful? It was. Um, I guess what 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 is what what is a mark of success? Mm. Um, we made uh, you know covered all the costs that we needed to. Mm. So that's a, as a producer, I'll have to answer with different hats. As a producer, sure. <laughs> yes, it was a success. As a director, um, um, I think that I would have loved, but it's too hard in COVID for there to be a fuller and a longer season. Mm. How long did the season go for? Um, only two nights, so that's two tiny. Nights. It's okay. basically, it's basically like it in many ways didn't really properly get started. Okay. Um, but 
uh, and particularly because we were adding in just all of these elements having more crew filming and and, and giving us tech support than there were mm. actors on stage um, but wow. that that was that was the experiment side of it that sounds very disheartening performing to an empty an empty crowd well empty seats no we had some so we were thankfully the chief medical officer signed off and we were allowed up to 50 people but that contributed to the experiment part and it not quite working because uh, I kept I thought it was one show that I was directing and I remember very late in the game someone said Lexi you do realize you're actually directing two shows Mm. and I was like what no 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 what are you doing (laughs) no no um but that person was right because things change as soon as there are bodies in space so there were that there were that there's but it's a tiny audience Mm. you you if you play to if you play to under 50 people it is hardwired in an Mm. actor's body that that's 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 a bad run that's a crap house and things aren't going well Mm. um and that meaning you were talking about earlier when you're conveying that meaning as an actor on stage and having it land with the audience is that lost in some way? Definitely. And I'm, I'm, I am sure that I, I, I'm, I'm sorry, actually I'm still, so I'm sure that the meaning was, I'm sure that all of the story wasn't clear and I, I'm still wrestling with, um, I think I'm settled on that if you were live, if you sat and watched it, you got most of it. I think you got like 90%, mm. but the, for the stream show, I'm not sure that all the story came through with that like just crystal clear clarity that the technique enables and there's some people some people have said I mean often people are very nice and they say oh I loved it I loved it then I kind of press them and then they do (laughs) say yeah I definitely got lost here and there um but that's that's the thing that uh, it's a theater show trying to capture it on camera um so yeah that's the experiment side and I'd love to get better at that that sounds like a wonderful experiment. And how, as an as an actor, I imagine if you're performing to a live audience, it's a different technique that you would use, um, like compared to if you're going to be on TV. It- yeah, that's true. But I was we weren't use we weren't treating the cameras as if it was like like film or screen work. Okay. We we looked at the cameras. Um, uh, one thing that just started the very beginnings of it, and I certainly um if this is probably one thing as a director in terms of success i we just began basically telling the cam like talk the actors the characters talking to the cameraman telling them to come in go away shoo and i (laughs) I really think we needed more of that i think we needed much more of that so so the idea is that it was a yeah it was a streamed theater show Mm. so we didn't ignore the cameras we we looked at them looked right down the barrel of the camera many Mm. times um and I think that um, Shakespeare lends itself to that, thankfully. But certainly, the work that you do for screen acting is you you ignore yeah you ignore the cameras entirely. Um, but I don't think that would have worked for this. Okay, where you think the arts industry will go and how it will perform in a COVID world where this becomes the norm, or like where you think it will go in a post-COVID world? And I think the. F- first thing that has to happen is the hibernators Mm. Um, and it's not just in the arts industry there are others you can feel and sense people are playing a temporary game they seem to think um oh there'll be a vaccine and by Christmas Mm. it'll be fine and um I just don't think anyone you know you know knows that for 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 certain Mm. um 
So I think the first thing that needs to happen is um, that little waiting game just is just going to have to stop. Um, the next thing that will happen is there'll be big closures. There'll be those who, um, because they didn't adjust, and to be honest, I think you know because they were playing a waiting game, they probably used up their reserves, and they actually sure. then they 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 they're going to have to fold. Mm. Um, Carriage Works in Sydney a couple of months ago, they they folded. What's um, Carriageworks is a venue and producing body in, in Sydney. So they, they make a little bit of their own work, but they're also a venue that people can hire, but they've had to, they've had to fold. So I think there'll be more of that. Mm. Um, and I think that really the screen industry is just going to, um, uh, you know, lead the way and take off. During the um, lockdown in Australia, all of the screen agencies, the federal one and all the states got together and they, you know, they're all administrators and they did some admin, um, you know, which is what they're supposed to do instead of just hibernating. And they created a protocol so that any um, any film producer, any company can go back to work in a COVID safe way. They just have to follow this this protocol. And it was like a huge body of work for them all to do. And then they shared it. It's amazing. Um, so the screen industry is is so many steps ahead um, from the very beginning of COVID uh, adjusting um, and I think there'll be some more benefits there. You can or you can already see that um, because things in America are in a far worse state. There are some uh, American commercials which are shooting out here. Um, I think more of that is is going to happen. Um, uh, so the yeah, good news, good news or positive outcomes is that I do, I think the screen industry could possibly totally totally take off. Um, but then for the theatre industry and and live performance, um, the waiting game just just has to stop. Mm. Um, and a way to ticket and make streaming financially viable um, has got to has got to emerge. There are many people in your industry who have said that you are quite a visionary and. I suspect that you are already inspired for your next project. So what is on the cards for you? I'm always very, very grateful when people say things like <laughs> that. Um, I I am trying to take a, a break, a solid mm -hmm. break, because mm -hmm. Roxbeer was, uh, was a huge effort, um, which I loved doing. So I'm taking a – but, you know, break time for me is also time and space to, to daydream. Um, when you produce, a lot of people uh, kind of come knocking on your door. Mm. Would you do this? Do you want to do this? Oh, hey, you're good at this. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm kind of dreaming and going through a lot of um, scripts and things that are in the inbox. I'm very keen to, uh, as I have said, find a find a happy medium and a new way to capture and stream live theatre. So um, a lot of my brain power is working out how I could do that, but not just for Lake Spear. I'd like to have something that I could offer that, um, you know, East Coast independent theatre companies um, could, could access. Um, I would like to make that contribution i then feel that the experiment um in the cow shed at epic for you know for live in your lounge and for roxby i would then feel that it was really worth it if there was something that i could offer to to others um 
And I am just trying to get some of my film credits up as well. Um, I always love trying to find, you know, kind of permanent colleagues and family members. Um, and I'm, I think I've, I think I found a couple, you know, who I really want to do some projects with. So looking at doing some, some work and bringing some of my producing stuff um, from the theatre space and going into the film space. So that's what I'm, that's what I'm daydreaming on at the moment. Um, <laughs> Uh, had a couple of great auditions so it's just so it's just so nice that some parts of the industry are are opening Mm. up again that felt really really promising Um, but yeah there's always different projects on the boil and you kind of got to keep the temperature going and then then things start lining up and then you've got to put all the vegetables in the one (laughs) you know but it's important to keep the other ones going in some way so um, yeah I'm just gathering all of that now. That sounds very exciting and I can't wait to see what you come up with. Now, before we wrap up, we do have a question that's come in from a listener. So for those listening, if you have questions for upcoming guests, please send them through. So the question from one of our listeners was she has requested that you talk about the economies that are created, the micro economies that are created when you produce a show. Good question. Um, <laughs> Thank you, Casey, for that question. Yeah, beautiful. I suppose, I suppose what Lakespeare is trying to do when yeah when you produce work, you when you're independent, there are um, there are fixed fees and there are variable fees, and I think it's important to make sure that with those variable fees, you don't um, take anybody for granted, um, and um, you're bringing together a huge number of people. So there's a venue that you need to consider. Um, so there's the space um, and that can have higher fees uh, attached to it. Then there's the crew um, and everything and everyone involved in transforming that space. So it can be the costume designer, set designer, um, the lighting and the sound team the gear, the tech that you will put in there. And then there's those who will stand in and move around and be mm. be lit or be wearing all of those bits and pieces. Um, uh, so those are those are like all the costs and some of them are, some of those are fixed and some of those are variable. Um, and then the income that you try to bring in, uh, I think it's important to uh, you know, Lakespeare's just starting to enter the ticketed space. So the Shakespeare by the Lakes, that's always the free festival. But other things that we do, um, Shakespeare by the Vines or Sounds of Shakespeare, these other shows where I'm trying to bring income. And I'm trying to, I'm bringing income for those who have the variable fees. So actors and creatives will always be because they love their work so much. They will often, I don't know, wrongly, rightly, it's it's, I think it's a case-by-case case basis. They will do whatever they can just so they can work and often take terrible fees. Um, and that is when and why you have representation, um, something I was talking about earlier. Mm. It's those those agents who are there to kind of help and make sure that actors who do what they do won't let themselves be taken for granted. Um, and I, I guess I'm trying to push and let people know um, you know, mainly in Canberra, if you're getting this amazing experience, um, then you need to you need to you need to pay for it. Um, and a part of that is then also just trying to get sponsorship as well. Mm-hmm. So I think that's that. Um, I think that's the space that Katie yes. is, is is asking about. It's um, the investment um, 
there's so much it's not just the and I don't think because of the all those audience development things we were talking about you can't just put it all onto the um the audience coming along mm. um and you see that where you you know some so many theater shows where it's like 90 or 100 dollars a ticket i mean it's that's, that's actually just an insane amount of money um for an evening out and you haven't even had a glass of wine yet mm. <laughs> you know um so i'm yeah trying to um encourage investment yeah financial investment um, and also for those, if they're not able to financially invest, um, bring in partnerships and, and have contra partnerships and deals. So we've got an amazing hotel partnership, which has been going for three and a half years now. Mm, with uh, Ramada? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. And they, they've just been, they've just been, honestly, they've just been amazing. <laughs> yeah. Um, they see what we're doing and we get, um, yeah, we get, uh, so much from them, um, and I suppose it's about a creative economy. It's about a healthy creative economy, what we have to offer and what other people can and should invest because mm. the offering is so rich. Great. And what do you think that the local and federal governments can do to support the arts industries? Um, well, a lot more. Not a little more, but a lot more. <laughs> Great question. <laughs> so generally, I think that there is an over-promotion of emerging artists and emerging work you can't only fund and support emerging and then leave emerged out in the cold because then there's no growth mm. so I also generally think that there's an over promotion of worthy ideas and then excellent ideas as being left out in the cold that's definitely happening locally in in, in Canberra if you're a new brand new playwright you can get a grant um, and if you're a brand new playwright and you've got a worthy topic, you will get a grant. If you are an established performer and you have an excellent product, you will not be funded by Arts ACT full stop. That is a terrible problem which must be addressed. Why, why is that the case? Because of uh, uh, this idea and promotion of helping those who are just coming into the industry. Mm. Now... I, I think the, and I understand the positive idea is that when you apply artistic practice, um, if you apply it to different areas, so if you do dance for those with a disability, um, if you do, you know, language and text work for those with, um, uh, uh, maybe with, with autism. So I, I, I mean, I do voice for, for people who have autism. Mm. You're applying the craft for the benefit of the community. That is one of the most amazing parts of, of what the arts and creative mm. industries can do. Um, but in the ACT, they only really um, wish to fund the application of artistic practice. Um, so that's why worthy things are funded. But you cannot, you cannot only fund the worthy stuff and then leave the excellent unfunded mm. because ultimately the applications will be richer if the pure practice is made better mm. by excellent work being staged. I think they go hand in hand. I, I just think you can't have one without the other. And I think there's a... Um, a problem at the moment where because it's easy to write in a grant about a worthy idea um, that's that's what's getting the funding and I think that just needs to be addressed nationally somewhat similar certainly with the idea of, of worthy things um, being promoted um, way way above and beyond 
um, excellent work. And then that means that there isn't what what I call or what is called a healthy transfer system. So we have in everywhere else in the world, it's it's you know cutely named in America in New York, a good show which is um, you know new or risky or doesn't have much money that'll be likely be off off Broadway. And if it's really good, if it's excellent, it'll then transfer to off Broadway. And if it's really good and excellent, if they did well, then then it'll go to Broadway. And that transfer system is essential for a healthy theatre ecology uh, and that's what's missing nationally. Absolutely. I agree with everything you've said and it sounds as though the way the government currently uh, allocates their funding and their grants means that, the, as you've just said, the, there is no ecology, which means that the audience isn't being developed so there's no maturation of... Of the arts industry. So there's a lot of amateur work coming through and those who are excellent are not getting the platform and the stage that they deserve. Mm. So they leave and it's happening all the time. So in Canberra, people will leave leave Canberra because there isn't that other place to go to. Mm. If you're emerging and you you get some money or you get some opportunities Mm. and then you've emerged... You, there's nothing there's, no, there's nothing, nothing for you to do yeah. <laughs> so wow. you go to Sydney and then a similar thing happens same cycle so then you go to UK or or to America mm-hmm. so now yeah we have a, a then a cultural brain drain and that's been going on for for far too long but you're you're right it impacts the audiences and it's a cycle uh, and I think that I, I do think that government can get involved and and address that cycle Okay, well, let's hope that we have some politicians listening to this podcast. Thank you so much for having me on and let me (laughs) rabbit on and on and on. Thank you so much for being on the show. It has been my absolute pleasure to talk about your work with you, to talk about the arts industry and hear what you're currently working on, what you've been working on during COVID. And I am really looking forward to going to Shakespeare by the Lakes. So thank you very much for coming on the show. Thanks. Thanks.